0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Darrell Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and
1: culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline. Bloodline, the new book by Skip Heitzig, gives you an up-close view of the cross that reveals God's ultimate mission to save you from sin's destruction. Bloodline is available wherever books are sold. It's Wednesday, March 20th,
0: and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. Today, we'll be discussing the changing face of retirement and how that affects people across the income spectrum. Hello, I'm Caleb Lindgren, Associate Theology Editor at Christianity Today, sitting in for Morgan Lee. I'm also joined by Mark Galley,
2: our editor in chief. Hello, Mark. Hello. How are you doing this morning? I am doing well because not only am I looking forward to our Lord coming back again, ah. uh the weather indicates that spring is coming as well. So yes. Which is always good news. <laughs>
0: always good. <laughs> in Illinois at this time. So
2: I know my here. hope should rest on Jesus and nothing less, but I'm I'm just a mortal human being who's also looking forward to better weather. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah. This might be the first week in a while that we've had uh, average temperature above freezing, which I'm always in favor of. Exactly. So that's great. Yeah. So um, we've got an exciting show uh, prepared for today, and I'm really excited about it. To introduce the topic, the March issue of CT Magazine featured a cover story on how retirement fits into the Christian vision of faith and work and how assumptions about what retirement looks like are changing for many Americans. Our cover story included the increasingly diverse ways that Christians are leveraging their post-career years for the good of their families, churches, and communities. We received a lot of great feedback from appreciative readers for covering the topic. It seems to really matter to them and they really appreciated that, but we also got a fair number of responses that were concerned that the way that we were handling retirement was too narrow. Um, I'll just read from one of our pieces of feedback from a reader named Aladino who had this to say. As a man nearing 60 and a career truck driver, I find this story unrelatable. Almost all of your examples, except for the music teacher, are CFOs, partners, managing directors, doctors, etc. And another reader named Rodney summed it up this way. Your article saving retirement in the March issue was a great summary of the situation facing retirees today. However, most of the examples of retirees doing something purposeful after retirement were people who had held leading positions in their field of work with presumably large salaries. The article definitely needed to portray some ordinary workers and what they have gone on to do. We think this is exactly right, and we thought that Quick to Listen would be a great place to expand that retirement discussion, to include those for whom retirement looks quite different, and those for whom maybe even retirement isn't an option. And to help us understand that, we've brought on a guest. Mark, would you like to introduce her?
2: Yeah, our guest is Amy Zitlow. She's the pastor of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Decatur, Illinois, and with Naomi Khan, she's the author of Homeward Bound, Modern Families, Elder Care, and Loss. Amy has over a decade of experience in hospice care, including serving as a chaplain and also a stint as the COO of the Hospice of Baton Rouge. Welcome, Amy.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, we're glad you're here. Um, I've been looking forward to the discussion since we got that reader feedback because I was like, man, they nailed it. That's totally right. But before we jump in, I'd like to thank all of our subscribers who support this podcast and Christianity Today. We really appreciate all of your support, which makes this show and everything we do here possible, so thank you. And if you enjoy the discussion of this podcast, but you haven't had a chance to read the original cover story because you haven't subscribed yet, head on over to orderct.com slash listen. And if you subscribe today, you'll receive the April issue of CT Magazine, and you'll also have full access to our archives going all the way back to our very first issue – And that includes the March cover, which is on our website, christianitytoday.com. All right. Without further ado, let's talk about retirement. Um, So how about an initial gut check, Mark?
2: Well, the initial gut check on the the responses that people gave was uh, a little disheartening because we have been working really hard as a magazine to be more aware of the class differences in our, especially our movement, but in the United States in general. Ever since the 2016 election, it's been clear that, there are many divisions in our country around, especially race, ethnicity, and sometimes gender. But the blind spot we often have is that we don't see class issues, clearly. And even though we've been striving to make make our vision better about that, we still sometimes don't see it. So thought that was a very helpful set of letters from people, and I'm really glad we're having an opportunity to broaden the discussion here.
0: Yeah, me too. I, I had a similar reaction. It was sort of a mixture of like yes, that's totally right. We should do that. I'm excited to do that. But also disappointment. That, oh, man, we missed that opportunity the first time around. Um, I also uh, was sort of struck by looking at that and thinking like, oh, you know, the way that I think about what retirement looks like is very much shaped by a whole lot of sort of almost like fables that sort of get told about like this is what happens when you when you work a certain amount of time, then you move on to the next thing. And then even the like counter narratives that we were covering about like, how retirement doesn't look the way that it used to, and people are approaching that differently, and they're talking about encore careers and things like that. Even that is shaped by a sort of idealism, assuming that whoever is doing the retiring or moving on to the next stage is stable,
2: comfortable, and with a fairly sizable income. Yep, exactly. And those are the people I tend to traffic with, just... just a personal revelation. I'm, I'm nearing this part of life, retirement. So I've been thinking a lot about it, but thinking yeah. about it in white collar terms. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, for
0: sure. So, Well, yeah, let's, let's uh, bring Amy back in um, because I would love to hear uh, some of your perspective. Amy, you're a pastor um, and according to your Twitter bio, you consider yourself a Gen Z pastor, but um, you also mentioned to us when we were talking to you about coming on the show, that you have a lot of folks from a variety of different backgrounds in your church. So what does retirement look like in your congregation?
3: Well, just to give some context, I think Decatur, Illinois, probably really looks like many small cities in America. Um, we're probably about three hours south from Chicago. We're in the middle of Illinois, uh, very much a rural area, lots of farmers. Uh, we're about an hour, uh, let's see, west of Champaign, so University of Illinois is about an hour away, and for Springfield's 45 minutes away. So. Um, we don't have a lot of commuters from those communities, but uh, many people from our community go there for cultural things and kind of different activities in both Springfield and Champaign. But here in Decatur, we're a city of about 70,000, and our main our main source of employment is manufacturing manufacturing. Um, We're affectionately called the soy capital of America. So much of soybean manufacturing happens here in Decatur. Uh, We also have a major caterpillar plant uh, manufacturing uh, construction equipment. So many of the people that are in our congregation are either employed in those industries or are employed by ancillary industries that help support um, that manufacturing process. So it's been very much a learning experience to see what does retirement look like in this community. And I found there's probably several different paths to retirement. Uh, when I read the Christianity Today article about retirement, that, that idealized image you all were just discussing, um, and that idea of vacation or leisure sort of being the defining element of retirement. That resonated more with the 80- and 90-year-olds that I serve. Those are more of the folks that um, by the time they're in their 80s, should should their health be good, they're able to go to Florida for the winter months and um, are able to not have to supplement their income with any type of part-time employment by the time they're in their 80s. And um, they're not like when they go to Florida, they're not necessarily living extravagantly. Um, I think of um, one couple, Lawrence and his wife, he was a retired postal worker and they were able to go to Florida every winter. They had a retirement trailer park uh, community there that they were able to rent space there during the winter months um, and then would come back here to cater in the summer months. And they were able to do that for about 10 years until their health started failing in their late 80s. Um, So it's both both a beautiful sign of longevity that uh, many of us can potentially think about living in good health through our 80s. Um, But that element of retirement as leisure, I see it more delayed until those 80s. For 60s and 70-year-olds, I tend to call it a hybrid model where retirement really means retirement from full-time employment. Um, or I call it like the non full-time work years. So that journey looks far more like having to have the necessity to have some type of part-time employment to amplify any pension or retirement savings, um, especially if social security, they don't start collecting social security till 67 or 70, kind of delaying that time of collecting on social security. Um, they really need to amplify some of their savings, um, The story I think of is um, a couple in our church, Bob and Connie. They just both turned 60 this year, and Bob worked for the local power plant for 25 years. And he retired two years ago at 58, and our whole congregation knew that he was counting down to the day when he was eligible for retirement um, because his work was— physically taxing. He was in maintenance, highly skilled maintenance, but after 25 years of climbing, crouching, um, kneeling, uh, really had taken a toll on his body. Um, even now, um, right now, he's recovering from his third knee replacement, which just gives a sense of for that, uh, how taxing that can be on your body. And so he was counting down to those days when he could retire from the power plant, but he was really honest with he knew he could not fully retire into um, being out of any type of employment um, so even as he was planning for that big retirement party, he was already setting up his part-time employment after that so he currently works at our local home depot he gets there at five a m and stays there till ten. he loves it because it's quiet that's when all of the shipments come in and so Uh, He gets on a skid steer and unloads all of the inventory and thing for that day. And he's like, it's quiet. You know, I see the truck full of stuff that I have to unload. I get to unload all of it and know when my jobs are all done. And then about 10 a.m. when everybody else starts rolling in, he's able to to go home and sort of enjoy the rest of his day. That income helps amplify um, his time in retirement.
2: Well, I was just going to say the postal. I wonder if the one of the situations with the postal worker as well was uh, better government benefits upon retirement than a lot of uh, what we call blue collar workers. The, the reason I ask is my dad, uh, when he retired, he was a he was a part of a, the uh, grocery clerks grocery clerks union, and they took very good care of him in his retirement years, so he didn't have to supplement his income and he was able to actually retire early. because he was kind of a frugal guy, so that was part of the deal. And it got me to thinking and thinking about him and other people uh, with the decline of uh, unions in the last few decades. Uh, that's making it harder for a lot of people uh, as well in terms of retirement. So I don't know if that applies to the postal worker.
3: Right. Well, and Lawrence is now 92. I know for him, although the retirement benefits were good, There was also the fear of how long are these going to need to last and also how to um, pay for medical treatments and that type of thing. So I know for him in his 70s, he had employment as a janitor in one of the local schools, which was something that he could do on a part time basis, um, but could amplify their income during that time. And so then when they were finally able to say, okay, we're really, you know, this will be a time of our life when we can go to Florida for the winter months, that really wasn't until their early 80s I when see. really okay. felt like, you know, I can't, some of this physical work is getting a little bit more or taking more of a toll on my body than I really want it to.
0: Yeah, that actually relates to one of the questions I was curious about, which is um, for the middle class and working class folks in your community, do their concerns facing retirement echo some of the ones that were talked about in the article with the more white-collar folks, are they concerned about the same things or is the different things that they're, that they're thinking about as they're thinking ahead?
3: Probably more that sense of how much money do I really need to live is, is really important in terms of feeling more comfortable having some type of part-time employment I found it interesting in the article, the sense of um even if you do seek part-time employment or an encore profession, uh, vocation, that that should be one of significance. So I started thinking about the folks in the pews um here in Decatur and you know, realizing like I think Bob would even tell you, he's he's a pretty funny guy. He like, look, my work at Home Depot is not significant. You know, that's um it does draw on some of his skills, some of his background in terms of um, you know, his expertise in life, but he's like, you know, that's, I don't know. He would say this is a necessity and not necessarily something um, he would say he feels called to do in the sense of other people who find um, ways to do um, maybe more what they might consider more significant work. However, having that part-time employment allows him to do other significant things. So it's more of a means to an end and I find for, for folks like Bob, and we have many uh, kind of recently retired late 60s, mid 60s folks in our congregation, it both frees up time for them to serve more at church and be more actively involved in sort of the day-to-day maintenance and care for the church, which isn't necessarily exciting, but is really necessary in terms of just cleaning and yard work and um, general maintenance for the church, um, but also clears up space for family caregiving. and. That was one piece it's sort of alluded to in the article, but I think that is far, far more going to be the norm that 60 and 70 year olds because we are living longer in better health, their parents are in their 80s and 90s and are are now just at the point where their health is starting to decline. Maybe their cognitive abilities are starting to decline. Um, I know for Bob in the last year, he and his wife have moved their, um His stepfather, who was living in St. Louis, um, moved their, his stepfather, Matthew, into their home um, because they started noticing at Christmas about a year ago that uh, he was starting to sort of mix up his money, starting to be more forgetful, and started going to some medical appointments with him. And he's in the early stages of dementia. And Bob is honest. He said, you know, if I were working full time, I he doesn't think he would have been able to consider moving his stepfather in with him. But that's really what's necessary. A stepfather doesn't have any other um, family. Um, Bob's Mom died about six years ago, so it's just his stepfather and Bob said, You know it's me like i'm I'm the only candidate to really support him or he's going to be out on the street or eventually going to have to be on you know Medicaid and be in a nursing home, but he's really still ambulatory and doesn't doesn't really need nursing care yet. Um, so both he and his wife Connie kind of just felt that was really their call um, that that's where they're finding significance is being able to have his stepfather at the home. And based on the trajectory of dementia, you know, Bob's honest. He's like, look, he could be with us for 10 more years. And it's, it's probably only going to get more care intensive as the disease progresses. But being able to have part-time employment, being able to retire from a full-time, physically taxing, mentally taxing um, type of job, right, opens up a space for him to do that more significant work.
2: I wonder if uh, the classic Lutheran theology of work, uh, vocation, plays into this, because uh, the thing I've always appreciated about it, it isn't like you're, the, the work you do to earn money uh, has to be a life calling and a, a divine calling in the sense. Like Luther said, the job of a shoemaker uh, is to make really good shoes. And for Bob at Home Depot, it, his job there is to just make sure the store is run efficiently as possible when he's there. And then he also has other things to do for the Lord.
3: Definitely, I think that that theological perspective of vocation, and I love when Luther will say, "Even changing diapers is a way to serve the Lord." And with three kids of my own, I said, "Amen." Amen Thank to you. that. You know, exactly. <laughs> honoring that, Katie Luther was a, was uh, was fortunate to have a, a husband that that understood the importance of changing diapers as a God given vocation. Um, but yes, I think that's definitely true of seeing vocation. Uh, in a multifaceted way, as both paid employment, um, but also family work as definitely that vocation. So is
2: there one other... Sorry, Caleb, this is a topic that's personally interesting. No, no, no. You go. You go. (laughs) Although I should warn readers, this is probably not for a couple of years, but I am thinking about it. Uh, So the other factor is uh, that it's not been expressed yet explicitly, is that uh, men and women entering into retirement age... They do not, many of them, uh, at least traditionally, do not want to depend on their children. Uh, Is that still a phenomenon or is that slowly changing with the new realities of the world we face in your experience?
3: Yes. In my experience, our elders definitely want to maintain their independence for as long as possible and also not be a burden on their children and grandchildren. Um, now living longer, um, many of our 80 and 90 year olds are very close to their grandchildren and are helping raise great grandchildren, which is um, just amazing. We have several of those families in our our congregation, and to me, that's really where the church comes into play. Um, for example, uh, Lawrence, who I mentioned earlier, um, the retired postal worker, and he and his wife um, had been able to move back and forth between Florida. Um, his wife died. Uh, eight years ago. And he now lives in an assisted living facility. Both of his daughters who are getting close to retirement age are both in the Chicago area. And as his pastor, um, I see him once a month, I bring communion and do communion services with him and um, the folks in his assisted living facility. Um, He's very well organized um, he knows, even though I'm not legally his power of attorney, should something happen, the assisted living facility knows that they will call me, and that um, they will be calling the daughters at the same time. But they're three and a half hours away, so if something needs to happen, I know, like I'm, I'm going to be one of the first people to go and be in conversation. I know his his daughters now pretty well because we've had some health crises happen, and so to help facilitate that as his pastor. And I can only foresee that growing. Um, We're going through a visioning process with our congregation right now and um, wanting to remind people part of our our outreach and pastoral care responsibilities as a congregation, right, are to ensure that our 80- and 90-year-olds can continue to live flourishing lives that have um, meaning and are continuing to live out vocations, whatever that might be, and that that will in- involve some of these sort of concrete uh, decision-making roles, um, bringing meals, being able to come over and change light bulbs. Um, like we're really going to have to step up because for a lot of our elders, either they, they don't have children or their children live hours away or states away. Um, so we're really the first line of defense in terms of their family. Um, the other piece, I think, for the church, too, that we haven't talked about is is those folks that are unable to retire. And because of their either their work history, perhaps they've been out of um, paid employment because they've been caregivers, either for young children, caregivers for older adults, um, or simply have had jobs that just have not produced enough retirement income in order to to reach the type of idealized retirement we've been talking about. And that's where that a greater dependence and awareness of the social safety net comes into play. And this was especially true in Baton Rouge and a lot of the work we did with hospice families is helping families understand um, all of the different resources they could access through um, society in institutions in terms of uh, Medicaid for health care, Medicaid room and board, should they need um, nursing assistance, um, being able to access the Social Security disability benefit. And I know as a pastor that when I was going through seminary, that was not something that I ever learned or thought that I might need to know as a pastor. Um, but I'm finding as um, as we're becoming an aging society, that is going to be an element that the church can, can really be a resource for, to better understand what our the senior services in our area? Are there, like, what are the senior activities and senior day centers that are available? Um, What are, especially with mobility and transportation, I find that's one role that our younger generation can play for our older generation in terms of driving them to church. um, If they know that they have a doctor's appointment, um, being able to take off a morning from work to be able to drive Mabel to her doctor's appointment and get her home. Um, And that even just simple simple things like a ride once a month can be the deciding factor between an 82-year-old remaining independent in her home or having to move into a nursing home. And so raising that awareness in our congregations of um, sort of understanding what the wishes are of our older generation and then what roles we can actively play in some concrete ways to make that happen.
0: Yeah, I'm really glad that you talked about that, because one of the things that I was interested to talk to you about was what are the responsibilities of churches in supporting uh, people um, in the sort of autumn years um, and beyond. And I think you answered that really well. I also wanted to talk about sort of the other side of the coin of that. Um, we did an article a while ago on folks with uh, disabilities. And the thing that I appreciated the most about it was that it was looking at the ways that those people serve and benefit the church and the ways that they bring something unique and valuable that the church needs in a way that oftentimes the church tends to approach folks with disabilities from a lens of like, what help do you need? How do we serve you? And it was instead, how do they serve us as members of the church? And that was a really Great perspective, and I wondered if we could sort of do that same move with um, the folks um, at retirement age, whether they're able to retire or not, and what are the benefits that you see that folks at that stage bring to the church that we as a church community need?
3: Definitely time, time and experience, um, both wisdom. You know that comes out in the article a good deal. I think you know scripturally we see um, elders are both sources of wisdom, um, but I love that in Scripture, we see elders are called to play prophetic roles. Uh, One of my favorite stories is in Luke 2, when Mary and Joseph bring Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. And the First two people that approach them are elders. You have Simeon, who's been promised by the Holy Spirit that he will see um, the Messiah before his death, and he gravitates right to Jesus and is able to proclaim that and bless this family, and will say words to Mary that she'll ponder for the rest of her life about um, Jesus's future. And then you have Anna, who's 82, and has been living in the temple since being widowed at a younger age, and she. She also recognizes the Messiah and Jesus and begins preaching. And I love that our first preacher in Luke's gospel happens to be an 82-year-old woman in the temple. There
2: you go. Um, yeah. That's but very I think interesting. That,
3: to that um, piece, even then, the temple was intended to be a place of safety and security for the most vulnerable, um, that even as a widow in a younger age, that put her very much in a vulnerable class. And so the temple became a place for her to thrive and flourish And that it was important for the community to invest in making all of the, like all of the elements of the temple accessible to all people. And that that was just expected of them.
1: We are more connected now than ever before, but most of us still struggle with feelings of loneliness and isolation. Charlotte Donlin believes loneliness loses some of its power when we talk about it. This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by her new podcast, Hope for the Lonely. Every week, she explores how loneliness intersects with the Christian faith and how we might hold on to hope in the face of isolation. So what is it within the Christian culture that causes us to still suffer from this?
3: Being a Christian isn't necessarily like putting on this loneliness bulletproof vest. We're still human beings, and we aren't ever going to be fully known by someone else. In Christian communities, people aren't real eager to admit it's something they struggle with. And I hope that people listen to this podcast, they'll be more willing to open up and listen. I hope they will think more about what God says about loneliness and how He is near to the brokenhearted. I hope they do find comfort.
1: You can find Hope for the Lonely on iTunes and learn more at charlottedonlin.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m. we're, we're in, in our synagogue praying. and. Sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on and on.
0: Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict.
2: When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home, but all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there.
0: This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come
2: all in one place. I do remember as a young man visiting a nursing home, and the one thing that struck me about the guests that were uh, still mentally alert was how frank they were about things. And I think there's something about getting to that age where you're, you're not worried about the security of your job, you're less and less worried about what people think and how you're going to impress people, and you're able to say frankly what you think's going on. And I think that is a real gift of, uh, of, the, of the later years in life, I think, that, that the church could use.
3: Definitely. Our our retired and older members are the folks I go to first with my ideas. Um, We have an 82-year-old woman who's a matriarch and one of our charter members of the congregation, and she's currently serving her seventh term on our Council of Elders. And she's the person I go to first with any... Ideas or visions, or you know, this committee is thinking about this new project, and I can tell immediately from her facial expression exactly. if she thinks it's something we should continue to pursue, or like oh, pause, you know, pa, maybe, put on pause. Maybe we need to rethink that. Um, but yes, definitely. I know as a pastor, those are the folks I go to for their honest. Feedback And they're also very encouraging. I mean, they love the church and want to, um, they see the power of the intergenerational nature of church. I'm often struck that the church is often the one place that you have infants and toddlers and teenagers and 80 year olds and 70 year olds all in one place and who are united by the gospel and not by any common interests or, you know, it's not a club, um, but we're we're all there, and that we all equally believe that, you know, the infant holds as much value in God's kingdom as the 97-year-old, and that God's working and speaking, um, the Holy Spirit's working in all of their lives. I think theologically, I often come back to uh, the Ten Commandments. Um, I know that was one kind of question, like, how, how does the church ground how we honor all ages, and that commandment to honor our father and mothers is, is really critical. and I, um, both Naomi and I in our the book on Homeward Bound, we were looking at modern families because families have changed so much in terms of divorce, remarriage, single parents, um, many I think it's, I think Pew Research now says one in four Americans has some stepkin in their family system. And so we really wondered, you know, does the honor commandment still hold? It does as our families change, um, do younger generations still feel that that commandment to honor our elders and honor the people who we call parents is still still applies to them and it was beautiful. We interviewed many, many people in Baton Rouge, and we learned that that's true um, coming from the church, it didn't totally surprise me, but it was really hopeful to see how our younger generations truly want to honor. Um, our older generations, and that may come up, come through uh, practical support, but may also just come through emotional support or um, respecting their their viewpoints in life. Um, but definitely see them as you were just saying, Caleb, as um, not as charity, but as partnership. You know that this is intergenerational, recipro- like reciprocal care that's happening, and that those who are who are honoring an elder are receiving as much as they are giving so it's truly ministry and not a one-way one-way street
2: yeah the uh, the interesting thing about the 10 commandments that we sometimes forget about is we tend to think they're all for all the commandments are for adults except for that one that one's for children when actually honoring your the whole 10 commandments are for adults which means honoring your parents after you're an adult and you have your own family so i think that brings a new dimension to it the other thing that I think that elders bring, and this is kind of counterintuitive, but I don't think you'll disagree, it gives the younger generation an opportunity to serve sacrificially uh, and to actually and to bear another person's burden. And that that is a- actually a gift we give one another, <laughs> uh, because uh, none of us grow spiritually unless we learn to uh, sacrifice and bear burdens, and this is one of the reasons I am not. Maybe I'm unusual, but I'm not. I'm not particularly concerned about having to depend on my children at some point because I think it'll be really good for them. <laughs> I mean, it was really good for me to have to care for my father. Uh, my mother died suddenly, so that, that wasn't an issue. But it was really good for me. It uh, took uh, it took a lot out of me, but it also built something into me. And I do think that's that's a counterintuitive gift. That gift of service. I would agree with that. Um, I've been watching
0: my parents manage their parents as they get older and like managing the estate and lots of different discussions and desire for, um, you know, different levels of autonomy and independence versus what's reasonable. The whole process has been refining for everybody involved um, in a really um, fascinating way to watch. I'm a little bit more on the sidelines of that, mostly because they, they really want to do it as a, as you know. Parents and children, and as a grandchild, I, I think I have less direct involvement, but I get to, I get to watch it happen, and I think that's really incredible. And then in the context of churches, um, and I love some of the stories you were telling Amy about how you know there are people that are located in your community with children that are nearby, but not quite close enough to be right there if something happens. And so it's the church that kind of is family and is the one that is able to be present and. Um, having that sort of network, no matter your age, I think is really, really important and being able to serve one another that way. Another thing I appreciate a lot about um, elders in the church is the level of investment that they can give. And I think sometimes that comes in the form of monetary investment if somebody is wealthy, but I think it's also the level of investment of time and energy, which you alluded to earlier. And then also the level of investment is like how much like care is put into the actions and the activities and the commitments that are made. Um, Again, I'm thinking of my grandparents who for years and years and years were um, um, involved in the um, running of their um, United Methodist Church in California And um, they were very committed to it and were sort of the glue during a pastoral transition. And they were both busy um, working folks at the time, even, you know, into their late 70s, early 80s. But they it was very important to them to commit and to be deeply involved in what was going on in a way that I think I don't see quite as often from younger generations. And it's not because we can or we won't, but it's just because there's a recognition of the value of that and the, the amount of longevity spent in a community sort of ties you to it in a way that's really beautiful. And I see that in the church that I attend right now. And, um, and I really like as a younger person, I need to see that. I need to see what that means.
3: Well, I wonder, too, if it has something to do with location. I mean, I didn't grow up in a small town. I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, but I find definitely, and granted, Decatur is more of a small city, um, but I find that here there are multiple generations that are still living within the area. And so that there there is more of an opportunity to see the witness of your grandparents or your great-grandparents and the investment that they've made in the church. I definitely see our younger generations being inspired by that, um, and then trying to balance time-wise how they can, can wisely invest their time at, in church um, with balancing their full-time employment. I think the word that came to my mind, too, as you were talking, Mark, about the role of learning sacrificial giving is also that awareness of sort of the precarity of late life, that um, as we age, it can be a very kind of risky time, both physically, uh, financially, um, also emotionally. And I think as churches, as younger generations um, see those in in their pews who are active and and are just more mindful of sort of that trajectory of of how just a fall can completely derail the next four months for an 85-year-old. Um, that element of kind of, uh, being sensitive to that is is really big and that we have an important role as younger generations in supporting them. I often think of my favorite book in the Bible is Ruth and the role that Ruth plays for her older mother-in-law, Naomi, um, that that precarity of life based on um, many of our older members are grieving, friends who die, spouses who die, fellow church members who die, um, both grief as well as declining physical abilities can really tempt us to bitterness. Like, there's a moment when after all of their spouses die and Naomi decides to move back home from Moab and she just says, look, I'm changing my name to Bitter. Like, you can just call me Bitter from now on. Um, and thankfully, Ruth um, sees in her, her mother-in-law that that's not, that doesn't have to be the way and the only way to push against that bitterness is from her investment and her mother-in-law and that covenant to say, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to go with you. And um, we're going to, we're going to figure this out together. And that the path for Naomi finding the joy and finding the beauty of her season of life really came through that investment and choices that Ruth made for her, both in terms of providing for her financially, but also providing emotional support as her family. So that story always really inspires me and I think speaks to a lot of the people in our congregation about why we would do that, that it is a risky time.
2: Yeah,
0: that'll preach. That's good. And that's, it's beautiful too, because that's the pathway of blessing that God uses to bless the nations beyond that. I mean, you have Ruth included in the genealogy of Jesus, um, and it's her investment and connection to and commitment to Naomi throughout that that transition that like is the vehicle that God uses, which I think is beautiful. There was something you just mentioned also about the, the precariousness of that age. And for me, when I was in college, I spent a summer Um, Working on my grandfather's orange orchard and we spent a lot of time together And one of the things we did every week was go to hang out with his tractor club And one of the things that struck me as a like I was probably 19 or 20 at the time and you know Hanging out with a bunch of octogenarians who love old tractors that that just the amount of time spent discussing death and like difficult health scenarios, which as a young person like was completely foreign to me and I needed to hear that. I needed to see that like life involves a lot of death and involves a lot of sickness and involves a lot of suffering in a lot of different discrete ways. And that, that doesn't necessarily make it morbid or depressing, but being made to think about those things and to walk with those guys through all the difficult, like we had a couple members of the club pass away during that summer and that wasn't a church, but it, it the communal aspect of that and the way that they sort of held each other up through those times was really, it, it impressed upon me how much I was sort of generationally isolated and how much it, I benefited from being able to see them walk through that and how to do it right. And sometimes how to do it wrong.
3: I know for me too, Caleb, when when I've had experiences like that, it's come, sometimes come through nursing home or from a relative. Also that awareness of, we have an idol sometimes of ableism, and I definitely fall prey to it. Um, I definitely, just looking through my Facebook feed, see that we can fall prey to um, worshiping our abilities, physical abilities, mental abilities, work, ab- you know, whatever that might be, and that it really throws us when um, those those may fail, right, or we um, go through a time of difficulty and watching elders find ways of resilience is so inspiring to remind us that um, it is an idol. God loves us regardless of what our abilities are. Um, I love the story in Mark 2 with the friends who bring the paralyzed man to Jesus and have to dig through the roof in order to get him to Jesus. And even as a preacher, I always focus on the moment when the man gets up and walks and takes his mat home. Um, But then I'm always pulled back when I realize, wait, He actually came to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, which Jesus gives him. And Jesus only heals him with the ability to walk after the Pharisees start questioning his ability to forgive sins. And that always pulls me up short to say, oh, Amy, there it is again. Right. Look how you you're you know, you tend to focus on um, that experience of physical healing um, when the man who came to Jesus was was completely whole um, as he was. Jesus really could, could heal him physically also, but he didn't necessarily, he didn't come to Jesus for that.
0: Thanks so much, Amy, for joining us today. It's been really great to talk about this with you, and I'm really appreciative of your uh, wisdom and experience on this topic. Um, yeah,
2: and the way you uh, stitched in uh, biblical theology, I think that's, uh, that's a really important aspect for us to keep in mind. Yes. Uh, obviously yes. as Christians. Absolutely. So thank you. Just a quick reminder
0: to our listeners that you can give feedback about this episode or past episodes of Quick to Listen by emailing podcasts at com, or you can tweet at us at CT Podcasts. All right, now it's time for our precious moments segment of the show—the part of the show where we talk about something that brought us joy uh, during this past week. And we'll start with Mark. Mark, what is something that has been making you smile
2: this week? Well, it was last night. I, mean, I met up with a longtime friend. I don't know if you know David Haskins. Yeah, from he was it? uh church we both attend, but now attends another church. And, mm-hmm. He's an artist who's slowly uh, making a name for himself, in, uh, both in the Chicago area and nationally. Yeah. So it was good to catch up with him. And it was one of those incidences we went to a, just a small place to meet, but we ran into uh, another two people that uh, were from the church and another uh, saw another woman, Eric, and I got to talk to her from the church. <laughs> and, uh then a, a friend of mine who w- had worked with Young Life for many years, he was the local Young Life leader, I walked in. It was just fun to, to see all those people uh-huh. Yeah, in a, in a place I didn't expect to see any of them, except for David, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. And it's kind of fun when that happens when you're connecting, reconnecting
2: with an old friend and you start yeah. to see other people. So what happens you was you, yeah, I'm there to connect with David, but then, you know, another friend walks in and I think, I really want to talk yeah. to him. Uh-huh. I couldn't just get up and leave David. but Right, yeah. Well. Yeah. But Maybe you give that but part. you know, it, it is the. I'm hoping it's a prelude to your experience with the uh, the, the the older farmers and their tractors, and uh-huh. that this would be a fellowship that, as I get older, just stays together.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh-huh. Well, I hope so too. Um, I, <laughs> I I was also going to mention with David Haskins, I his artistry and his art is fantastic and I've, some of the most powerful experiences i've had at like art shows have been things that he has produced yeah because um, the way that he he does mixed media and lots of
2: different yeah very experiential um, art. yeah it's yeah. fantastic yeah. so plug for david way to go david um so mark where can we find you oh i have uh, published something called the galley report which can be found at christianity today slash the gallery report I link to articles and comment on them, and a lot of people find it helpful. I find it very interesting to do myself. So, <laughs> All right, Amy, how about you? What has been something that's been bringing you joy this week?
3: You know, I'm currently working on a report for the Center for Public Justice on paid leave, and it's been such a great learning opportunity. I think this week we're slowly coming to the the point where it's finally um, getting close to being a final draft, which, for those of you who write, like know like what a joy that is to finally get to that point. And, Um, the sense of just how much like this report's going to help people in our congregations in terms of thinking about both, leave to care for an infant or um, a newly adopted child, um, but also how much leave is really needed for when we're caring for our older parents and like that that will be one way that we can really support them as a society and that the church has um, a role to play in both advocating for that um, legislatively, but also um, helping families know how to access that um, so it's been great to just kind of be holding in my mind both the people in our congregation who are now going through Lent. We're getting ready for the second Sunday in the season of Lent. And um, Lent is you know, such a wonderful time to kind of do a 360 assessment of both life, faith, what's going on in, in, in our church. And so it's really been a blessing.
0: That's wonderful. And when that report is finished, where can they
3: find it? You can go to the Center for Public Justice in their Families Valued uh, Upright and lots of great resources there. Just this week, they, resour- they have released a toolkit for congregations um, so that if you'd want to write letters or advocate for um, paid family leave, um, you, can, you can do that.
0: Great. And where can people find you?
3: Right. You can um, find our book, Homeward Bound, which is based on interviews we did with folks in Baton Rouge on caring for their parents, step-parents, ex, even ex-step-parents. That's modern day families. Um, You can find us on Amazon on Homeward Bound. um, Also on Twitter at RevAmyZ.
2: Wonderful. Thanks. I would also put in a plug for the Center for Public Justice. I've followed it for some decades now and in this uh in this world of extremism and utopianism and political sphere, Center for Public Justice is very well grounded in what I'd call a realistic approach to politics but also driven by biblical values. So any resources you draw from there will probably be helpful for you
0: yeah, um, so let's see my precious moment for this week uh so we're entering entering the season of Lent, as Amy mentioned, or I guess by the time this episode airs, we'll be about a week, two weeks in. My Lenten discipline um, has been to read large swaths of scripture as a thing that I'm doing uh, each day. And uh, normally I read scripture in smaller chunks and I kind of ruminate on it. Um, And reading, having to read a large portion, like an entire book in a day, it it just adjusts the way that I'm thinking about the Bible. Um, And I'm worried a little less about the details and I'm looking more at the big story um, and I'm also noticing things that I haven't noticed before. Um, and uh, one of the things that I love about the Bible, and it's sort of trite to say it, but it's true, is that like the, you come back to it and there's always something, something fresh and something new. And God continues to reveal himself through his word. And I have been finding that very true, um, even as it has been a discipline because sometimes there's a lot that, um, I've sort of decided that I'm going to try and get through in a given day. Um, but it's been a really wonderful, um, exercise and I've been enjoying it, like genuinely enjoying spending a lot of time in the word. Um, if you would like to follow me, um, you can follow me on Twitter at C Adams Lindgren. That's C A D A M S L I N D G R E N. I don't tweet often, but you're welcome to follow me if you'd like to. Um, Also, absolutely um, head on over to ChristianityToday.com, subscribe, read our articles. I work on theology content, so things that are related to the Bible, theology, and thinking about big thoughts about God is sort of my beat. Um, So if you read anything that you like, let us know. Um, And thank you to uh, Amy Zitlow for coming on this podcast and being a great guest. Thank you to everyone for listening to another episode of Quick Listen. This podcast is made possible by all of you, our listeners and subscribers, and thank you so much for your support. Morgan Lee will be back in the host seat next week. Um, you can find Quick to Listen on Apple Podcasts, where you can also rate this podcast. If you like what we do, please give us a good rating so others can find us. And thanks to everyone that already has rated the podcast. We love you guys. Quick to Listen is produced by Richard Clark, Cray Alred, and Morgan Lee. I'm Caleb Lindgren, and thanks a bunch for listening, everybody. Have a great week.
1: This episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by Bloodline. Everything Christ suffered on the cross was for you. In Bloodline, a new book by Skip Heitzig, you will discover the overwhelming truth of Scripture. God loves you. The cross proves how much. Bloodline is available wherever books are sold. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear.